Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to ours and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's not about what Hannity and Combs did. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person, regardless of who's in the White House. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God Damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God Damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God and the so-called Negro has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of the white man. Then they can bring the issues that are under the rug out on top of the table and take an intelligent approach to get the problem solved. That's the only way that they'll ever do it. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Gray. They were soldiers without swords. In the 21st century, they are soldiers without swords. What price do we pay when the black press is suppressed, the black perspective is suppressed in our media? Outside of the black press, do we question who frames the mirror of what comes out of America's newsroom. Is there a true black perspective, black voice, and what does it mean? We didn't exist in the other papers. We were neither born, we didn't get married, we didn't die, we didn't fight in any wars, we never participated in anything of a scientific achievement, we were truly invisible unless we committed a crime. 
But in the black press, the Negro press, we did get married. They showed us our babies being born. They showed us graduating. They showed our PhDs. The black press never pretended to be objective because it didn't see the, the white press being objective, and it often took a position. It had an attitude. This was a press of advocacy. There was news, but the news had an admitted and a deliberate slant. For over 150 years, African-American newspapers were among the strongest institutions in black America. They helped to create and stabilize communities. They spoke forcefully for the political and economic interests of their readers while employing thousands. Black newspapers provided a forum for debate among African Americans and gave voice to a people who were voiceless. With the pen as their weapon, they were soldiers without swords. From the Rodney King riots to the racial inequities, of a new digital media. Amy Alexander has chronicled the biggest race and class stories of the modern era in American journalism. We have long lauded the role of the black press and black reporters, black journalists and writers. But how does it frame what we hear, what we know, and who they are? When it is noted that black reporters and journalists are soldiers without swords, do we really understand what that means? In her new book, Amy Alexander analyzes the damage done to public awareness and understanding throughout the 20th century because of, of the failure of traditional journalism to adequately allow soldiers to have swords. Amy Alexander, the author of Uncovering Race, a Black Journalist Story of Reporting and Reinvention, joins us at our common ground tonight. Thank you for being with us. And thank you for being with us. You are listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, your host, and tonight with us is Amy Alexander. She is an award-winning content producer, the 2008 Alfred Nobler Fellow at the Nation Institute. She has contributed to many prominent publications, including the Miami Herald, the Boston Globe, Village Voice, Washington Post, and The Nation. In her new book, Uncovering Race, a black journalist's story of reporting and reinvention, this veteran journalist examines the major news stories that were entrenched in the great race debate of the past three decades. Stories like those of Elian Gonzalez, Janet Cook, Jason Blair, Tavis Smiley, the tragedy of Hurricane Katrina, and the election of President Barack Obama. It is a sharp analysis of how race, gender, and class come to bear on newsrooms and takes aim at mainstream media's failure to successfully cover a browner, 
younger nation, a failure that Alexander argues is feeding news organizations' demise faster than the Internet. And we are so pleased here at Our Common Ground to have you with us, but more as much to have Amy Alexander once again come to our microphones. Good evening, Amy, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Good to have you back. And I am telling you that uh, we are so pleased. You are such a gifted and brilliant writer. Uh, well, that's nice of you to say. Thank you. I really appreciate that. There is very little that you write that mm. I am don't become excited about um, and find your insight combined with your wit to be so terribly, terribly important to foster a relationship between a writer and a reader. And we thank you so very much uh, for being smart enough and understanding enough and insightful enough to write this book, Uncovering Race, A Black Journalist Story of Reporting and Reinvention, which I um, devoured as it came in. <laughs> That's nice of you to say. Amy, uh, tell our audience um, why you decided that it was important. Uh, obviously, the work and the and the brilliance that you put into this book, um, you it was a concerted decision uh, to write the book. Where did it start in your in your in your mind, and what did you hope to achieve? The book, um, well, let's start with the last part of your question. What I, what I hope to achieve is uh, just sort of raising awareness, not only among my uh, fellow journalists and, and uh, media professionals, um, raising, raising awareness across the board among practitioners for the importance of, you know, paying paying closer attention to inclusion. You know, I, I've... I'm a language person, and diversity <clears throat> is becoming something of a of a, a kind of a double-edged sword. I think that the the, gatekeep, the gatekeepers, both in the uh, journalism education uh, sphere and certainly in the commercial media, it's almost as if when you say diversity or diversity enters the conversation, that that idea that people begin to sort of shift uncomfortably in their chairs and roll their eyes and you know i think i think it's important to always be refreshing one's um definitions and i think been thinking about this a lot lately as i as i go around and talk about this book i think inclusion might be more the point uh and the, and and so so the goal is to have both both practitioners and journalism educators understand that you know america is really changing rapidly i mean you know our founding is is a nation of immigrants. We are a nation of immigrants, and that has kind of been lost. Uh, certainly, I'd say the past 50 years, when the establishment, the the, the predominant uh, political and policy making population tends to be tends to be middle class, upper middle class, elite, meaning uh, very well educated white people, who who kind of don't really understand that that the hoi polloi in america uh are your news consumers that that is your audience and the audience for news and information in america 
is becoming browner and younger, as you said in your introduction. You know, I'm not extrapolating or speculating. It's all in the U.S. Census data. So in pure bottom line sense, it, 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 is, it makes sense for these news organizations to really, really look at the audience real, you know, very realistically and think about are you covering these populations and these issues you know, comprehensively and accurately? Mm-hmm. Are you producing news and information that is relevant to these audiences, that, is, that, is, that resonates with them, and that is accurate? Okay? So also for consumers, this is the second part of the goal of this book, is to advocate uh, for consumers, which is to say the audience, which is to say readers, to become more media literate. And if you are a, a, a resident or a citizen of America or someone passing through who kind of is interested in what's going on in the world and you look to news organizations, whether it's a, a traditional news organization or a new digital pro, uh, news outfit, you, you know, you, you need to be able to understand that what the staffing and the, the, the people who are presenting that news and information, they're real people, they have baggage, they, 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 they have biases, that are influencing what you are reading. So you need to have media literacy about what it is that you are consuming. So this book, you know, it's a very long answer, but, but this book is directed at both audiences of a particular type and, and foremost at practitioners and journalism educators. Because I have to tell you, I've been in this loop for a long time, and what has happened in the past uh, almost 10 years has been uh, a real sea change in the way journalism is delivered, in the way uh, journalism is produced. And the biggest piece that's missing is this idea about the way the population in America is changing. It's phenomenal. You go to work, I go to workshops, I go to panels, I read all this material. And 201, the big, so-called big brains, both in media and, and in the in the journalism education sphere, have really failed at addressing the fact that the audience is changing dramatically and rapidly by the second. And it's like this mysterious thing. I mean, I'm not the only one who writes about this. I mean, you could search, search, you know, go to Google and search uh, the phrase, you know, the future of journalism panel or workshop. Just put in those three phrases, and and you'll you know, up will come all these at Columbia, you know, at all the big journalism think tanks and all the all these panels that have been held in the last four or five years, almost two a one. They have panelists who are who are identified as being experts and they're pretty much always white men. And that panel will hardly ever talk about the fact that not only do you have to now be savvy about digital and, and putting up your news product or your web publication on you know obviously online but that you also have to shape your content in a way that it really is meeting the needs of the changing population in america that is off the table so it's this weird disconnected thing and so i felt this book was important to do that now an interesting thing about me promoting this book at this time even as we were beginning a, a big uh presidential uh election year the big news organizations almost two to one are really kind of ignoring this book. They, everybody, all these people know me, but the topic, the subject matter, 
is kind of proving the point of the book because it's like they're going, well, race and media, what's that? You know, why that? Why do? Why should we care about that? So I'm, you know, it's it's interesting to see where I'm getting, you know, uh, media people that want to talk about this. That's mm-hmm. that's as much as you know, I'll say about that. And I guess I'm not surprised ago, by that, honestly. Hmm? Twenty years ago, when I started, uh, and thank you very much for your 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 very. Uh, insightful and in well, it was long, and that's another fun. problem. I have to well, say, Janice, I, it's hard for me to do sound bites because none of this stuff. <laughs> well, you know, it's that's not. Why it's, we don't bring you on for fifteen minutes. All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, and then, we live in a you know we live in a real kind of glib and and pithy. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's supposed to be coming up with like these little catchphrases, and and I kind of that's not that's kind of not what I do. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. you know, twenty years ago when I started broadcasting, doing. Uh, what I call uh, the black insight and perspective on mm-hmm. the news. I, I would end almost every broadcast by saying, if you are just reading the Miami Herald, if you're just reading the New York Times, if you're just reading the Palm Beach Post mm-hmm. or the Sun Sentinel, yep. then you are liable to get brain damage because you will <laughs> never understand the black truth of the event. Right. Well, and 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 your book really gets to the heart of, of that. Um, and one of the things that you say that it is a story about your it is it really is a chronicle of your your experiences as a journalist and as a reporter in the real life live world of news reporting. And you right, talked about last... some of the some of the. The people who are in were in black press, and their insight into what was happening as we changed into a digital age, and how essentially the black press hasn't um, had a big. Uh, well, its influence presence. is waning. Yeah, I mean, it's, right. You know, and that, that I think that's true not just for ethnic media and black the black press, but. You know, independent, end of quote unquote independent news organizations, unless they are tapped into the the vast uh, uh, funding availability of of the public corporation for public broadcasting. If you're not in that loop, you're kind of struggling. And um, uh, you know, I have to say that when I entered in journalism in the '80s, it I, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with with what you said at the top of your last comment which is that if if one if one were only reading the the traditional news uh publications for a long time certainly for much of the 20th century <clears throat> the Miami Herald the LA Times the Washington Post they were not getting I don't know if I'd go so far as to say they were getting brain damage but they really were not they were getting either a skewed version of their experience and maybe the issues that interested them <clears throat> that are kind of unique to mm-hmm. marginalized and or ethnic ethnic po- populations you know black people and mm-hmm. and brown people they don't want to just read news only about black people and brown people you know i would you know you you would read the washington post avidly for the political coverage for the but you also would want to see similarly high quality coverage of the particular issues that mm-hmm. That interests you, and for a long time, certainly in the 20th century, that was a, that mm-hmm. probably wasn't going to be available in those 
publications. But when I came in in the 80s, it, it, the news organizations were beginning to sort of try and filter in more accurate coverage, more comprehensive coverage. You know, they were uh, after the, the big riots and the, and the, and the uh, urban upheaval of the late 50s through the, through the early 70s, you know, in all the big cities, the riots over, poverty, over police brutality and economic inequality and when King was assassinated and, you know, there were all these urban riots that happened. And that's kind of really the, the historic turning point uh, as, as the 20th century marched toward its end when news, traditional news organizations, the gatekeepers, the top editors began to look around and say, you know, we probably should have people who can go into these communities that are exploding and make it out alive, you know, and come back and tell us what what has really gone on and what is really rolling up people because newsrooms used to be all white, you know. So okay. and that was that was this kind of the turning point where African Americans, Latino, Asian journalists began to be hired in main quote unquote mainstream news organizations in measurable numbers there there are always exceptions i mean i i reviewed a book in the washington post a few years ago uh, uh about sort of you know black journalists going back you know to the early part of the 20th century there are always one or two you know but really beginning in the late 50s through the through the, about the early 70s is when the numbers began to stack up now what has happened since is that the economic upheaval that has been spurred by the internet. You know, none of these news organizations can count on tomorrow, really, because the advertising base has disappeared. All of the classified ads and the display ads, which used to be the bread and butter and fund uh, the hiring and, and uh, overhead of running a, a newsroom, not to mention the printing and the paper and the personnel, or those are the three Ps are the biggest uh, costs for any for any print publication the internet has upended all that and so the the initiatives that the biggest news organizations most of whom are owned by corporations starting in about the 70s they have begun putting initiatives in place however flimsy however um comprehensive they have begun putting initiatives in place to bring in uh, to to locate and 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 and, and sort of groom and train young journalists of color who they could sort of have in a pipeline and and count on for perspective. Now, the mm-hmm. interesting thing... And that's thing exactly in a, what I meant, the perspective. Yeah. When you were at the Miami Herald, when you wrote for the Miami Herald, when mm-hmm. Lorenzo Pitts first came to the Miami Herald, when... You mean um, Leonard, Le, Leonard, Leonard Pitts. Leonard Pitts. Mm-hmm. Um, when um, Charles Blow started writing for the New York Times, you mm-hmm. got a different and specialized kind of perspective on a news story, and that's exactly what I mean. Right. Um, Although it's also true that that a lot of uh, <clears throat> a lot of this can be very nuanced because I also witnessed. I I I really resisted it and did not fall prey to it. But there was another dynamic where Latino or African American or Asian quote-unquote non-traditional news uh, reporters and editors sometimes would get into these organizations and feel, perhaps for, their, for the sake of their own survival, that they had to instantly conform. 
So, I mean, I had many dealings with editors, and I don't really get too deeply into this into the book. I sort of talk, talk about it in general. But I had run-ins over, over almost 20 years in newsrooms with many black editors who look, for all intents and purposes, look like me, uh, that, that were really problematic because these individuals had essentially decided they had to walk and talk and at least give the impression of thinking just like the dominant population. And mm-hmm. that that's kind of a you know yeah and yeah same, and I saw that yeah, a lot the same, you know the same kind of behavior was going on in um, the new wave of 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 government employees as well as um, private sector employees mm-hmm. people who got in charge right. somehow felt they had to right. emulate that's but, right and it happened with women the, too that 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 rose to leadership after the after the the surge of feminism in the 70s same thing. Mhm, mhm. And and what helped you to break through that? Um, uh, well, I, that's actually a good question. Um, I, I think it was a, at least at least a couple of major factors. Uh, and and by the way, I have to front load my response by saying that is that that me kind of trying to hold my line has not come has not come cheap. I mean, I, you know, I've <laughs> I've had many difficult, you know, and experiences in some of these news organizations in large part because I, I kind of, you know, I, I don't want to either sell out my own personal beliefs and certainly not my professional ethics in in favor of just keeping a job. I mean, I say just in quotation marks because, you, you know, I'm not rich. I need a job. But after a certain point, I always, I, I, I always bristle and, and, sometimes balk at some of the things that were either asked of me or imposed upon me. Okay, but but where does that come from? It comes from the way I was raised. You know, I'm I'm I have a very strong family and uh they support me not blindly, but they always I was raised to do the right thing and to believe in myself and to um sort of walk pretty much walk walk a straight line, you know. Right. And that's important. So that's accountability. Yeah, the second thing is mm-hmm. I I came up in uh uh I I was I was I went through a journalism program at in San Francisco State University which is my alma mater, San Francisco is my hometown, my hometown who were really skilled and very uh you know smart and they kind of just they were expert at k- kind of you know inculcating me and letting me know that you can you know you can do this you have the goods to do this you you're not going to be perfect there's no such thing as perfect but if you if you tr- if you get the journeyman experience if you're dedicated to it if you're willing to put in the work you have the kind of both you know the aptitude and you're 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 learn you know you want to learn so just keep learning and you can you, you can succeed so i had a kind of grounding that um, is very important, I think, in whatever your career is, you know. And to be able to navigate your yeah, principles. Yeah, and I mean I, I, I mean, I made many mistakes. I made in-house political mistakes. I made mistakes all the time, you know. Sometimes you have to know when to kind of <clears throat> calibrate your, your, the way you present yourself and, and, you know, the battles that you decide to fight at any given time and it you know i mean i i i made mistakes you know i didn't i didn't just sail through but that's okay uh-huh. because 
I I was able to by 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 repetition and by sticking to it and also by having uh developing over time a network of mentors. Mentors are very important no matter what career you're in, but mentors who would always be willing to if not step in, but at least hear me out and give me their best advice in the moment so that I wouldn't just completely, you know, fall over the edge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like the way you're such a word wizard uh, that you calibrate it. I'm going to, um, when when I write my, my memoirs, I'm going to say that I did a lot of calibrating. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit you know, of a euphemism, but I think, yes, I think absolutely. it's a good word. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Thank you. We're, we're going to have to uh, take a little break because I do want to talk to you in depth about some of the things you discovered in the process of writing this book about yourself as a journalist and about the profession of journalism. And the other is I want to talk about some of the personalities that you noted uh, in the media, uh, both historically as well as contemporary because I think that you've done just a simply marvelous job. And for those of you who are listening, the book is Uncovering Race by Amy Alexander. She is our guest tonight. Uh, And you must buy this book. You must read this book uh, and give it as a gift. Many of you who are our regulars will note that I do do a lot of authors in, in the month of November because I think that the holidays... Uh, that it ought to be book giving time, and some of the some of my favorite authors and writers um, I try to present to you at our common ground so that you're giving uh and getting some good re- read gasms over the holidays <laughs> you're listening <laughs> you're listening to our common ground I'm Janice Graham, and we are here with our guests. Amy Alexander, the prolific, and it will be written in history, uh, author, journalist, and content editor. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Our guest tonight, Amy Alexander, talking with her about her new book, Uncovering Race, a black journalist's story of reporting and reinvention. Our Common Ground, Talk That Matters, bringing it bold, brave, black, each Saturday. 10 p.m. I'll be listening for you. They say if you want a wish to come true, never tell anyone. But there is one wish that can make the difference between life and death. And this wish can only come true if you tell someone. Please, let your family know you want to be an organ donor.
TruthWorks Network is proud to bring you Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and friends. Right here at TruthWorks Network, Wednesdays, 9 p.m. This is Janice Graham inviting you to join Elvin Dowling, Architects of Change and friends. Each Wednesday, 9 p.m. at TruthWorks Network. Change is a good thing. Doing it right is even better. Join Elvin Dowling, a change and motivation coach, right here at TruthWorks Network. Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and Friends. Wednesdays, TruthWorks Network, 9 p.m. Our Common Ground Blog Talk Radio I'm Janice Graham It's where black people meet on Saturday night Our Common Ground Thank you for being with us I'll be listening for you Thank you for being out there with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Our call-in number is 347-838-9852. And our guest tonight, Amy Alexander, the author of of a new book, Uncovering Race, a Black Journalist's Story of Reporting and Reinvention. You may know her from previous publications, including 50 Black Women Who Changed America, and Lay My Burden Down, Unraveling Suicide and the Mental Health Crisis Among African Americans, which she co-authored with Dr. Alvin Poussant. Again, Amy, thank you so very much for being with us tonight. Um, I do want to note uh, to those of you out there that if you'd like to join our chatters, we have a live chat room open at blogtalkradio.com backslash O-C-G. That means our common ground, in case you didn't get it. Sometimes people don't get it real fast. (laughs) Blogtalkradio.com backslash O-C-G. And you can join the discussion that comes along as a complement of this broadcast. Amy Alexander, one of the things that I wanted to find out from you uh, about your journey uh, in reporting and how it has reinvented you. Right. Well, <clears throat> pardon me, that actually circles me back to a question you'd asked me before the break, and I, I neglected to really get to it. Um, this this book uh, originally was conceived as a collection of columns. Uh, I had written a column about race and media at a website uh, that that uh, first began publishing in 1998, and the name of the website is Africana.com, and it is very much lamented. Its passing happened in about, I think, 05. Officially, it, it was killed by um, AOL. It it passed through a couple of of hands. Uh, it was it was it was founded at Harvard in 
in I believe ninety eight by Eight, um, yeah. By Around by Henry time. Yeah, by Henry Louis mm-hmm. Gates Junior and, and K. Anthony Appiah, the great uh philosopher, and they put the site up uh with funding from Microsoft. It was originally to support publication of the Africana Encarta, which is a great uh uh, any 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 black scholars out there, amateur or otherwise, need to get the Africana on Carta. And uh, this this website went up in the late 90s, and in 2000, uh, by, or I should say by 2000, it went independent of the Microsoft arrangement and became a standalone black issues covering black diaspora around the globe. Everything from news and information to opinion to cultural criticism. It was a re- it was a really great website. It was sort of um, a counterpart to uh, if anyone is familiar with Slate.com, which has been going since around the same time, about yes. 99 or so. And Africana was had very high level, you know, uh, coverage and and writing and editing and did interesting things. And I began writing there in 2000 and carried through uh, uh, until it became run by AOL.com, and they, 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 they just didn't know what they were doing. So they, they let the column go in 05. But I over that five-year period, I, I wrote a number of columns about race and media. And in oh, about the end of 05, I, I was on a conversation with my book publisher, which is Beacon Press in Boston. They published a book uh, that, uh, Janice, you mentioned in your um, – Coming out of the uh, break, uh, they published my third book, which is about African Americans and mental health issues, and I, they're really great publishers. So I, I stay in touch with them, and I recommended that we think about how to turn those columns into a book, and they agreed. So we made an arrangement, and a ri- the original concept was to kind of just be literally chap- each chapter would be w- one column that had published. But by the time you know we made the arrangement and as I proceeded with sort of doing the kind of refresh, refresher reporting that would um, bring some of the columns up to date, it occurred to me that I probably that format probably wouldn't work. Why? Because by about ninety, by the middle or end of ninety, uh, I'm sorry, of '06, it was clear to everybody that the news business was just in turmoil because of the internet and newspapers were on the brink of closing and some of them were closing and. You know, uh, it was just this tumultuous period uh, where it just felt like it wasn't going to be uh, the right format to kind of literally publish a book about race and media that was so constrained, a little bit constrained by the, you know, being tied to columns that had that had originally published in, from between 2000 and 05. So. But the theme would remain. The theme would remain, and so I did, you know, different kind of reporting, and the framework of the book changed from being kind of an episodic look at whatever issue was happening in the media world that that focused on or dealt with race and media at any given time between 2000 and 05, and we decided to sort of push out the the timeline to become – my career in journalism, which began in about the mid-'80s. And that way you have kind of a natural chronology of the past almost 25 years now that still encompasses the same – that still allows for getting at those same themes 
about what does it mean when you have a news organization that's set in a very diverse uh, region, and yet you have a, a news or, uh, a staff, an editorial staff that doesn't reflect the the the, the people and the issues really that that are being covered. So in the book, I I, I you know my ed- I work very closely with my editors, and they're very smart, and they suggested that for each chapter, my chapters in this book pretty much follow. Uh, my regional path, which is to say the book opens after the introduction in San Francisco, and then it moves to Fresno, then it moves to Miami, then it moves to Boston, Minnesota, and then Washington, D.C. And in each of those chapters, as I recount some of the issues I dealt with in newsrooms and some of the stories I covered, I also build into each chapter a demographic uh, portrait. So what what that means is I I pulled down census data for the years in which I've lived and worked in those cities and 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 publish them and say this is what this region or this city looked like at this time you know 80% white people 10% black people you know whatever the numbers are and then I I contrast the surrounding population figures with what the newsroom demographics were so it's real it's very stark and it, it can be a little shocking when you think that in the Bay Area, for example, in San Francisco, which is very ethnically diverse, you have high numbers of all manner of different kind of ethnic groups. But the newsrooms, according to the ASNE figures that I that I used as my primary source, ASNE is the American Society of News Editor, which up until very recently would do annual surveys of, of, of print news organizations asking them, what does your newsroom look like? You know, head count. Give us a head count. And so – you would have these really huge gaps. It's called the diversity. It's the it's the it's the index. It's the, and there and there's a, there are huge gaps in many of these cities where the cities are very very ethnically diverse, but the news organizations are not. And you I know call that it the adverse impact analysis. That's right. And and you know and this is this is I mean and it's not. I have to kind of. It, it's 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 not always just a numbers game i have to always say that because um as i said earlier sometimes you can have a newsroom that has a that seems to have a lot of diversity in terms of pure numbers and there's 12 black editors or whatever the number may be but if those individuals are not really you know open-minded and if they're just sort of in there trying to conform Mm -hmm. to the to the dominant mindset well then how diverse really is your coverage do you know yeah so it can be it can be really yeah, we, we we do see that uh, in in our news where there that the presence of of uh, diverse insight mm-hmm. and perspective is simply diluted or right. non-existent. It can be, that's right. It can be diluted, and again, it might be a survival thing. I mean. Sometimes people don't want to don't want to buck the system, you know, mm-hmm. or it can be diluted because oftentimes, in my experience, a lot of the editors who can be who, who see themselves as being well-meaning, you know, this was my thing at NPR when I when I when I worked at NPR in 06 and 07. I mean, I, I thought, well, this is this is going to be like a cakewalk because these are all liberal people at NPR, aren't they? Well, they are. But as we now know, following the the blow up over Juan Williams last year, there's a kind of liberal orthodoxy that doesn't allow for dissension or new ideas, 
and it can be just uh-huh. as insidious as any conservative mindset that can that's rigid, you know. And Those and that that that's, have it. Yeah, Those that's problematic. Have it I mean, that they have to not only change, they have to transform. That's right. That's right. And the and that there's always more to know. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So it and, it can and be tapping into, you know, one of the things that that happens uh, and I hear you saying that, and I hear you you laying it really laying it out in detail in in the book, is that if you don't value a diverse perspective, mm-hmm. then you won't include it. Right, and it, if, it'll be yeah, just wiped out. That's right, and if if you don't get why why it it is best it it, it will be best for your bottom line in the long run. Mm-hmm. to be more open-minded and to think more expansively and to be willing. This is another thing. I was talking to a, a, a mutual friend, Janice, and I'm, I think I'm guessing some of your listeners are aware of Mark Anthony Neal over at Duke. Mark Anthony Neal and I were talking the other day, and I said part of the issue is no one wants to give up power. Uh-huh. It, it, ultimately, it's about power. And if you and your cohorts have been running these news organizations for all these years, who wants that to end? You know, I mean, it, it, it's somewhat a simplification, but it's true. And they don't want to give up power. They just don't want to cede that power. Yeah. I made a similar kind of presentation to the editorial board of the Palm Beach Post mm-hmm. back in 1989. Wow. About this mm-hmm. very issue, wow. uh, I had I enjoyed a very good relationship as a local broadcaster mm-hmm. with the newspaper, and I occasionally talked to some of their opinion writers and editors, and and so they did a formal thing, and I was talking about this. If mm-hmm. you have, if you're bringing in black and Latino reporters, you have to value the uniqueness that they bring to your newsroom. Otherwise, you might as well stay as you are. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let and the I, talent you know, go somewhere where it's going to be used. That's uh, right. Amy, I, I know that it has taken a great deal of sacrifice uh, and a great deal of painful experiences for you to say so true to your craft. I read your community um, blog, and it's and I posted it in our chat room, Amy Alexander Community Forum. Um, every every week, I make sure that I check to see what you have written. Oh, isn't that nice? And of course, I hardly ever update it. I'm so bad. <laughs> I hardly have time to update it there. But you know, the thing is that we have to begin to think of as. As you po- you point out, um, reporting on Katrina, reporting on Jason Blair, reporting on Janet Cook, and reporting on you were in South Florida during the Elian Gonzalez uh, episode. Actually, I wasn't. Po- I was not in South Florida during that time. I was. I was in L.A. though for the riots. Oh, okay. Okay. Was, yeah. Um, and and what you point out is that. You you really do have to navigate your way in an organization in the same way that people who attempt 
to transform for the good uh, organizations in, in in business organizations, etc. And and it becomes very painful. But tell me what you thought your your greatest uh, breakthrough was on any of the important the the really important stories that our audience would be clued into. Well, what certainly was, covering yeah covering the L, the Los Angeles riots in '92 was was an important moment for me uh, for a couple reasons. I I felt that I had walked an important line of objectivity. You know that is the kind mm-hmm. of the um, the prevailing uh, myth about uh, professional journalism in America over the last probably going on a hundred years now is that with fear or favor to none. You know, you go in there, you tell the facts, ma'am, just the facts, you know. But in truth, every news report, even the straight news reports, which are apart from the opinion uh, columns, inevitably reporters and the editors who edit the reports carry with them their own sets of biases and and beliefs and and personal uh, baggage, which inevitably will in some fashion color uh, or influence the way news is presented, and the decisions that get made about what will be covered at any given time. So I, in covering the riots, uh, you know, I was at the Fresno Bee at the time, which is a mid-sized paper in the middle of the state of California, right in the central, uh, the San Joaquin Valley, and we raced down to L.A. on the first night of the riots uh, after the cops who beat who beat up Rodney King were acquitted um, of criminal charges, and there was a big uh, urban riot, and we went there, and uh, I had to put my personal feelings and beliefs in a box. I had to really kind of say, all right, well, Amy, you're here to cover the news on the street and with the official agencies that are trying to, you know, deal with this up- up- upheaval, so you can't, you know, you're not a column writer, you're not an opinion writer, you're a news writer. Just go in there and tell what's going on. So I did that. It was it was really it was really I mean, it was like being in the middle of a war zone, you know. Uh, and we were there all week, and it was it was very um, uh, you know uh, dangerous. And and I won't go too far into the weeds, but it was it was it was like being in a war zone. So I filed a story, or sometimes two stories, every day for that week. And only after I returned to the newsroom in Fresno, which is about 250 miles north of LA. This is a, this is before the internet. So it's not like we could go to our workplace in LA. Well, yeah, and, I know we, about that. You know, yeah, we put up at the Associated Press building. They gave us space because that's what the Associated Press is for. And so mm-hmm. we that was our home base and we slept at night in a hotel up in North North uh, Hollywood that we had secured rooms in a little hotel off of the fi- off of the freeway there. But anyway, so I did not know what was being published. I only know what I wrote and what I sent. So at the end of the week, we go back to Fresno. I'm there, return to the newsroom, bedraggled, you know, suit covered. I was like all worn out. It was really, um, uh, I was exhausted. And there on my desk, one of the news, one of the news aides had piled all the papers from that week, and I had not seen them. And I opened the papers, and my heart just dropped because in some of the stories, not all of them, but in some of the stories, the editor who had been in Fresno receiving my stories via the very primitive technology that we used to send them up to Fresno, he's a white guy, middle-aged white guy, had been inserting language and imagery and ideas 
that were very biased and were very um, different than what I I had actually experienced. So that to me was a huge wake up. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, moment for me, and it was mm-hmm. it was it was stunning because I I never confronted that person directly. That guy was not my direct editor at that time, but I went to my direct editor a few days later, and I I was furious, and I said that what this 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 is you know he's putting words he's calling these people that were that were angry on the streets and that yeah they were smashing windows and taking goods out of the stores, but he's referring to them as savages. You know, and that's a word I would never. I didn't put it in the story. That's not my word. I would never call the the, the people on the street savages. And my editor, who's a very nice guy, very smart, said, "You're right. It won't happen again. But please don't make a big deal out of it because your guys' coverage was a success. Overall, it was a success. And you need to sort of just cool your jets because it's done. You can't fix it now." And, you know, I will just now be mindful of this dynamic, but don't, you know, don't put yourself in a bad situation politically because it's done, you know. And I was just, I was deflated. I was like, oh, just that's just great, you know. Uh, but that was, this is the kind of thing that is, that really let me see. I mean, it was like a huge awakening of this is why you really need people who are the, the last look editor who has, the wherewithal and the sensibility not to do something like that, at the very least, not to lard up a story with that kind of language, okay? Mm-hmm. Or to get me on the phone, find me at the AP Bureau, and run it past me and say, you know, how about I've rewritten this section? Is this okay? You know, but this guy had so much kind of sense of, I don't know what, but he just felt it was okay to just put those kinds of language, words and images in those stories, not all of them, but in a, in a couple of the key stories, he inserted language that I personally and professionally know is highly objectionable because it creates in the mind of the of the reader an instant an instant uh, assumption. Oh well, there you go. You know, this is mm-hmm. this is what the black people do. They just they just kind of go rampaging. You know, they're all a bunch mm-hmm. of savages. So um, it was that was a big um, uh, uh, wake up call for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, actually, as a word crafter, let me let me interrupt you just for a moment mm-hmm. here. As a word crafter, one of the things that 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 I am so enamored to you about is that your ability to capture into words both the essence and the factual basis of an event, and then to transpose that skill into what you did at the NAACP uh, at the time that... <laughs> I can't believe you're going to go there, Janice. Oh, my God. At the Which time... I did not write about in this book because the book is kind of... It's kind of not really that. But if you want to talk about that, I'm happy to talk about no, that. No, 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 no. But I'm just saying that <laughs> a true journalist, a, a person who really is a professional at expressing ideas, and painting pictures, right? And well, that is you know that in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, I look well, at the speeches that you wrote for for uh, uh, at the NAACP. It yeah, for the for the current and possibly nation looked at the NAACP. Yeah. It yeah. revived a whole organization that was essentially dead. Right. So, well, but we're not going to go there. Uh, well, yeah, that's uh, that that would be a very long aside, Janice. <laughs> <But> yeah, <laughs> that's a whole show. 
you know, it, what it comes down to is because I had that grounding that I talked about earlier, because I spent mm-hmm. so many years, I spent almost two years just be, being, quote, unquote, just a news reporter. And even though now the Internet has this very fast pace where every story on the, uh, you know, everybody's updating all the time. You can update by the minute. Back in my day, I don't want to sound like grandma, but, you know, when I started, uh, I worked at an afternoon paper. My first job was at the Examiner in San Francisco, which was an afternoon paper, which meant that some days we put out three editions. So that was almost the same concept as writing a blog or writing an on a, on a website, a news organization's website now that can be updated by the minute. I had to be, I had to be fast, be, I had to be accurate. And mm-hmm. I developed the skills to be able to go out and gather the news and verify the information. You know, this is another thing. Journalism, p- pure journalism, is, is not more complicated than this. It's a process of verification. That's pretty much all it is. You figure, you see what's going on, you either observe it or you hear about it, and then you go and you call or you read, and you figure out how to verify that that is actually what has happened or what is probably going to happen. And then you, you, put, in, uh, uh, the, you put it in the appropriate context, and then you publish it. That's all. It's, it's not any more mysterious or difficult than that. However, to do it well, consistently, is difficult. That's the challenge. Mm-hmm. And that's why the ascension of the Internet is, is proving to be so, so problematic because of the yeah. rapid pace. It's nonstop. And it makes yeah. it hard, especially for young practitioners, practitioners who don't have all the time on the ground that I had, <clears throat> to figure out how to be able to do this like without, without, almost without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so you, that's and why you see so much. You just have to have solid skills nowadays. You don't, you don't have... Uh, like the guy in on the movie, four days to mm-hmm. to work through your story in your head. <laughs> right, right, and that's and it's problematic because you know there's another another aspect of one of the sub themes in my book, uncovering race, is that so many mid career <clears throat> qualified journalists of color, but also a white journalists, have been shown the door, or bought out, or otherwise encouraged to leave, or just laid off in the past five years because the news organizations are struggling to be able to keep their doors open. So they're letting people go who have 10, 15, 20 years, 25 years of really, you know, solid experience. And, and you know, it's problematic because then they're, they're backfilling with younger – I'm not saying young people won't eventually get there, but they're not there yet. And the emphasis is being put on all the – all the new technology and, oh, can you cut video and can you do a podcast and can you blog and can you do all these kind of entrepreneurial things, which are important. I'm not, I'm not diminishing their importance, but mm-hmm. it's coming at the expense of that real uh, fundamental training that you only get by just covering school district for two years in a row or three years in a row or covering the cops beat for two or three years in a row and just doing it over and over, learning how to develop your, your sources, for goodness sakes, not by emailing and calling and, and, and you know, Skyping with people. you got to know how to meet and deal with real people in the mm-hmm. real world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when I started broadcasting, there was no such thing as a free long-distance call. <laughs> right. And there was no email and there was no Internet and I had to drive to Miami to get uh, the earliest copy of Emerge or, what, sure. or, or whatever the magazine was or the newspaper. 
uh, in order to even prepare for a show for the for the next right. day. And people don't realize that that has its 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 cost as well. I mean, I never used to have people on my on our common ground that I didn't have a conversation the night before about right. what we're going to talk about. But now I've got mm-hmm. email and I can say, here's the outline, or this is what I want to talk about, right. or you take it, or whatever it is. Right. Um, and things well, it's instant do change. <clears throat> right. We have. Pardon me. We have capacity for instantaneous communication, but you know, interestingly enough, I don't know if, if people are any better informed. You know, mm-hmm. and in part that's be, again because of the, uh, <clears throat> the the fragmentation of the news business. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the and the fact that the internet now allows almost anyone to put up their own product. This is something that I write about in the book, and I, in shorthand, I describe it as a dynamic that is filled with promise and peril. It's very promising. I mean, groups. I talk about. I talk with James Rucker for this book. You know, the the guy who's yeah. behind Cha- uh, Color of Change, which is a great web publication. Color of Change is very activist oriented. They're they're mm-hmm. they're social justice advocates. They they take up causes and raise money, and they have all these busy people running around on the ground. You know, <laughs> whenever there's an injustice against a poor person or a black person, they're there. You know, and that's great. But um, they're not a, they're not really just a news and information organization, and this is why again I talk about the need for uh, 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 audiences and for the general population. There there's a there, there's going to be a pressing need going forward for audiences to be media literate, mm-hmm. understand what is pure news and information, just the facts, ma'am or sir, versus Stuff that has a highly partisan or political or whatever the uh, you know the, the the agenda is that all those all those lines are blurring now they're really becoming blurred and I you know maybe it's because I'm I'm like an old I'm a, I'm a relatively old school I kind of that makes me nervous you know that mm-hmm. makes me nervous I mean I, I love Jack and Jill politics I love Cheryl Conti and those those guys over there that have put up Jack and Jill politics but that is not a news site. That is a that is a political advocacy site mm-hmm. of a very specific and most type. people don't recognize even <clears throat> though uh, there are some um, broadcasters on MSNBC, many of them don't do the proper vetting of the information that they provide because they're opinion makers. They're not that's right news reporters. That's right. And, well, and we have do, to be they, very careful about that. That's right. They they do Amy, proper vetting for their purposes, which is a, to push a political point of view. Amy, I know you're going to have to leave shortly, but I need to take a break and let people know where they are, and our and we're going to take some calls at three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two with the author, journalist, content editor, content developer, <laughs> and, content producer, <laughs> and content producer, Amy Alexander. This is our common ground at Blog Talk Radio. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Dr. Benny Moore, at least to make 
things anymore. It's all automated. What are we for then? We're consumers. Ah, okay, okay, buy a lot of stuff, you're a good citizen. But if you don't buy a lot of stuff, if you don't, what are you then, I ask you? What? Answer it, L. Back, Jim, back. If you don't buy things, toilet paper, new cars, computerized blenders, electrically operated sexual devices, serial systems and brain implanted headphones, screwdrivers, miniature built-in radar devices. I don't really come from outer space. <laughs> it's a condition of mental divergence. I find myself on the planet Ogo. Part of an intellectual elite preparing to subjugate the barbarian hordes on Pluto. But even though this is a totally convincing reality for me in every way, nevertheless, Ogo is actually a construct of my psyche. I am mentally divergent in that I am escaping certain unnamed realities that plague my life here. When I stop going there, I will be well. Are you also divergent, friend? I can't use it. I'm trying to make it real compared to what our common ground. We don't sell you anything. We point you somewhere. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Enter the Lion's Den. Enter the Lion's Den with LDX and Information Man. Swagger Talk Radio at TruthWorks Network. TruthWorks Network. Yo, when I die, don't show me no pictures. Bury me deep in this black and gold city. Lay two mics on my chest and tell my body lions that I did my best. Yo, when I die, don't show me no pity. Bury me deep in this black and gold city. Lay two mics on my chest and tell my royal lions that I did my best. I'm a royal lion, hear me roar, this is war. I'ma bring my people to the light, this secure. I'm a royal lion, hear me roar, this is war. Knowledge is the shield, your tongue is the sword. The sky is the limit, but we shackled to the floor. I'ma bring my people to the light, this secure. Royal lion mob, into the lion. Enter the Lion's Den with LDX, featuring Information Man. Only at TruthWorks Network, Thursdays, Fridays, 9 p.m., East Coast, West Coast, meets. I'ma bring my people to the light this Royal secure. Lion Mob, into the Lion. 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 And thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight, Amy Alexander, with her new book, Uncovering Race. 
a black journalist story of reporting and reinvention. And we thank her so much for being with us. Amy, again, it's a wonderful book, and I hope that all of you will go out uh, and purchase it. It's beaconpress.org is where you can get this book. And for those of you who do most people don't know, Amy, that Beacon Press is the first uh, private printing it was the first printing company in this country. Yes, it was, and it's been publishing continuously, if I'm not mistaken, since 1854. And it is, um, it it actually is a a part of the Unitarian Universalist Church. And uh, yep. if people are not familiar with that, that is kind of the let's say they're they're more they're more social justice oriented even than the Methodists and the Lutherans. Uh, you never they have knew a long... that I was the public affairs director for the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. Oh my goodness! Right, so and it you was know, at the they're, time. They're very, yeah, yes, very progressive. It was at the time very, you were in but they're, Yeah, but they're quiet. You know, you know, they yes. don't they don't get up and. Say, I know when you yes, when you have to go to their their breakfast, um, mm-hmm. where their guests stay, uh, is very quiet back up in there. <laughs> yes, they're very quiet. They're very, <laughs> yeah, they're very calm. And I they're know. very smart, yeah, and they're very know, dedicated the first, to sort of race and, and class uh, justice, yeah. The first four years, uh, in the, the the second four years in Boston, I lived right at 10 Beacon Street. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. it was right on the path all the time. We're going to go to our phones. Uh, 610, not sure you want to be on the air, but you're on the air at Our Common Ground with Amy Alexander. Six one zero. Okay, let's go to seven seven three out there in Chicago. You're on the air with Amy Alexander. Thank you for your call. I respect you. Good evening, Janice. How are you this evening? I respect you, and good evening to Miss Alexander. Hi. Uh, how are you? I have a comment and a question, and my comments are normally long and long-winded and drawn out, but. The comment is, for me, is, isn't the corruption of real journalism, isn't it gone much too far to pull it back from the brink of just extinction? There are people who are willing to do real journalism, but isn't the environment, isn't the theater so corrupted with opinion and political uh agendas and it turns into a situation where there is no room for a real journalist to you know report on just the facts and when you begin and if you report on just the facts you run the risk of being if not uh attacked by people with the agenda but it it seems to be a a muddy water scenario where are you interested in where you see obvious uh, balls and strikes being called in a different way to correct the record? Or I mean, you know, I'm just I'm real confused because of the, what journalism has turned into. Right. Well, I uh, <clears throat> right. Well, no, that's I, I I get where you're going, and and it's just. Uh, I hope I can answer questions succinctly. I, the space that 
you're talking about is shrinking. I I I, I got uh, to that a few minutes ago. That that space for what I think of as pure journalism, which is to say, just the news column, the news stories. You know, uh, three people died today after a delivery truck ran off the road when the driver had a heart attack and you know ran through a bus stop. That kind of coverage is the amount of space for that kind of coverage is vanishing, okay? And it is because the news organizations are are somewhat panicked about their economic viability. So what what has been replacing uh that is uh opinion and blogs and interactive features where people can you know, we'll, whether it's a TV news site or a, or a, a, you know, you're you're in Greater Chicago, so you would have the Tribune is your main newspaper, I'm guessing, and maybe the Sun Times if that's still hanging on. If you go to those two websites, you'll see all these kind of things going on, and it's like, how do I just find the front page, you know? And that's because the news organizations don't know how to make money anymore because the number of subscribers to the printer product as they pass on or lose interest, they're not being replaced by people who are willing to pony up money to buy a subscription. And also the advertisers have fled to other places online where the rates for them to advertise are lower than they would be in a Chicago Tribune or the Washington Post. I live in greater Washington. So this has created for editorial operations uh, diminished capacity. You know, they have less column spaces. Every big newspaper, by the way, in America in the last 10 years has literally shrunk in size. You know, you used to hold your newspaper open and you could, like, spread your arms. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't know how big you are, but I used to be able to, like, hold the newspaper and I'd have to extend my arms all the way. Well, now the newspapers themselves physically are smaller because they don't have as many columns as they used to, column inches. So, this is why I advocate for uh, uh, populations, communities, readers, audiences, whatever, whatever, however, when we want to refer to readers. It, it, it requires more work of you. It requires you to kind of be smarter. And and you know, if you have young people that you are in contact with, you know, let let them know what you know about what is real news. Let let them know what you consider to be real news and information, because the younger people are the biggest risk population. I have two kids. One of them is 12. She is at the cusp. The 12 year old is at that cusp of the. I think the young people who kind of know the difference between news and opinion and just blogging and snark and speculating, but people, the people coming up younger than her, I think it will be an open question, and I think it's going to be problematic because how do you make, how do you make informed decisions about your world and life around you when you, you know, you, you don't have access all the time readily and easily and inexpensively to accurate news and information. The news organizations that are online that have put their brand online, they are struggling to sort of hold that line, <laughs> you know, sort of continue providing the straight news, whether it's covering, you know, Lincoln Park in Chicago or the South Side, and to give enough space to what is really going on in those communities. It's, it's, uh, it's an open question as to how long 
they'll be able to do that, you mm-hmm. know. And so to answer his question, I don't really know. I just want people to sort of hang on to that line. If if you're aware of where the line is right now, try and hang on to it and try and pass on pass on your knowledge of the difference between opinion and and snark and speculation and news and information. And and even the, even in that space it's not perfect. I mean, you know, I I was a news reporter for a long time before I sort of switched gradually to writing opinion and I know, you know, think about what I just said about covering the LA riots. Even the news columns can be problematic, so um, it's it's an interesting uh, dynamic. Well, I was I wanted to ask you a question about how poisonous how poisonous do you believe that the um, entrance into the political arena that uh, the Rupert Murdoch and News Corp has become, you know, they have, it's my opinion. See, when you start talking about uh, opinions and and what have you, that's all I talk about is my opinion. When right. I when I speak and, and my, my but what, opinion. But what, in, but what informs your opinion, sir? Where How do you form your, where do you get the information that then leads you to what, what your opinion is? Well, what I look at simply is the, the information that may come in from both sides. Okay. And I, I form my opinion on how how blatantly false one side is against the other, and the other side may not may have its bias, but it seems to be uh, an agenda from the sure. right to right. to skew the argument and and have this agenda of I mean, a total dishonesty. Right. Well, that's true, and you know, there's precedent for that. Certainly, in the, in the annals of American press, going back more than a hundred years, you know, I'm from a town on the West Coast where the biggest media uh, uh, presence for a long time was the Hearst family, and you know, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, you could you could, you very easily could have called him the Rupert, the Rupert Murdoch of his day. You know, back mm-hmm. in the starting in the 1880s, when he began buying up newspapers around the country, uh, that that is that is a long tradition. And in and in England and other parts of the world, it's very blatant. I mean, there are you know some papers are known as being in England. You have Tory papers and you have conservative papers. You know, it's it's not unusual to have news quote unquote news organizations that uh, audiences and readers instantly recognizes being for one political party or agenda or another. But here in well, America we have we've that tried... in Boston now. That's the right. Boston the Herald and the, the Globe. Herald. That's right. The Herald is the the Herald is the blue collar uh conservative working quote unquote working man's paper, although that you could go on and on down in the weeds forever about, you know, the the weird way that the conservatives in the last twenty five, thirty years have managed to co opt the idea that working class people should be conservative when in fact the conservatives in America politically have done nothing but rip off working class people, you know. So that's weird. But the the Herald the Herald is the working class paper in Boston and the Globe is the liberal elite Harvard, you know, wine sipping paper. Well the same with the Tribune and the Sun Times. That's right. You know, that's here right. in Chicago. I mean and this is right. how Do you have another question? It seems to break down like that. No, right. that 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 
Well, I do. All right. Have... Thank you so much. All right now. Uh, thank you, Alpha, for your call. Uh, Amy, I have thoroughly enjoyed the time that you have spent with us tonight. Um, I, 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 I do have one final question. Sure. And, <laughs> and that is, what's your n- next book project? I don't know. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. Well, we're we're certainly... Uh, going to be looking for uh, your newest project and keeping our eye on Amy's Community Forum. And for those of you who are listening, you can go to amyalexanderinc.com to get more information about her new book, Uncovering Race, a black journalist story of reporting and reinvention, and to catch her opinions on the nation as well as her community forum. Amy Alexander, thank you so much, and uh, thank, thank you, you for the I, I extra really, time you gave us. Thank you. I really, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to having you come back to talk about some contemporary issues. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, you know, the, the election year is coming up, and it already it's promising to be action-packed on the media, race, media, and class front. Well, we're certainly going to be calling on you. Thank you so much, and thank you, listeners. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. That was Amy Alexander, and we're hoping that all of you um, take a look at her book, Uncovering Race, a Black Journalist's Story of Reporting and Reinvention. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and when we come back, We're going to be taking your calls at 347-838-9852 to give you a chance to um, either respond to what you've heard because uh, you've just heard the opinions expressed by one of this nation's prestigious journalists and and, uh, reporter with a great deal of commitment and passion to uh, diverse perspectives on the news. And we'll also be talking about Penn State uh, tragedy and our response to that and harmonizing how Herman Cain and Clarence Thomas, Thomanizing, on sexual harassment, uh, what are those two cases like? How are they the same, and how are they are different? Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two and we look forward to talking with you about those items when we come back. Our Common Ground. Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham. It's where black people meet on Saturday night. Our Common Ground. Thank you for being with us. I'll be listening for you. Have we looked at looked into the eyes of evil, pure evil, and said to ourselves, what is this country coming to? What have these bigoted 
racist. And I will repeat it. Bigoted racist. Anybody wants to challenge me on that? Have at Have at Reload some Alpha, the Mo Alpha Show, on TruthWorks Network. More of the Alpha Show, 4 p.m., TruthWorks Network. The odds of this daughter of a clergyman spending 11 weeks at number one on the U.S. singles charts? One in 19 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One in 1.4 million. The odds of having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 150. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. MPR leans to the right. MPR leans, and you can ask, you know, and when I say the MPR leans to the right, I'm simply speaking about who they have on. They have twice as many conservatives on spewing bovine excrement than they do liberals with their chicken excrement. So at some point in time, you have to step back and you have to say, where's the job? What job bills have they introduced? The only thing Republicans have introduced is spending cuts that will cost 700,000 jobs. They are clearly trying to shut down our uh, economic growth and our recovery. You've got governors all over the country turning down jobs for speed rail. Now, regardless of how you feel about the speed rail, you mean the French can do it? Japan can do it, the Chinese can do it, Europe, they can do it over there, but we can't do it here? You know, where is this exceptionalism coming from when we are so um, mired in ignorance and mired in, 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 in just, just total obstruction? Listening to the best Pushback Politics, The Alpha Show. Who will survive America? Few Americans. Very few Negroes and no crackers at all. Who will survive America? Few Americans, very few Negroes, and no crackers at all. Who will survive America? Thinking it was coming around the corner was really Tony Curtis and not a misguided brother got his mind 
You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend.